0: A couple days ago, I was still in bed, sleeping in, because I had been up very late the last several nights, and Leanne still had to go to work, unfortunately. Uh, being a teacher, she she was still going to work while we were all home. Kids were on break. And Aubrey, my wonderful oldest child, was kind enough to let me sleep in, and she was watching her little brother Aiden. And so I'm still in bed, and all of a sudden, the door Swings open, and I hear the fast pitter patter of Aiden's little feet. And he says, Daddy, Daddy, red Lego. And I'm, you know, I'm doing that groggy, half awake, still half asleep thing. I'm like, What? He says, Red Lego, red Lego, red Lego. And I said, What, Aiden, what do you mean? Red Lego, red. And he said, I got the Lego. And what he was holding up was something that he's been asking for for Christmas since. Thanksgiving, which is this blue Lego that is actually a red Lego that doesn't seem to bother him a bit. He's, he's obsessed with Legos. He loves Legos, and that's what he was asking for for Christmas. This book that's all about Legos, and in the book was this little Lego guy. Now, that had been wrapped up <laughs> and tucked in the back of the Christmas tree, but this morning... Aiden knew exactly where that was and exactly what it was, apparently, because he didn't, he didn't mess with any other presents. I mean, he vroomed right to that present, and he starts opening it. And he not only opens it, because it's a book, he gets the little Lego guy out of the book and just discards the book. And he comes running in to let me know he got the Lego. And so I'm, I'm realizing now what's going on, and I said, Aiden... How did you get that? And then Aubrey comes in right behind him. And I said, Aubrey, why did you let him unwrap the present? And she said, I didn't. And I said, how did it get unwrapped then? She said, all I did was go to the bathroom. And I came back out and there he was. (laughs) He was just sitting on the floor, just going to town, unwrapping, unwrapping. And then, ah, you know, and uh, I can't really fault him too much because I was the same way as a kid. Uh, I loved Christmas and I hated Christmas at the same time. You know what I mean? I loved Christmas. I loved the magic of it. I loved how special it was. uh, But I hated waiting on all of the the gifts. I hated it. And in many cases, I refused to wait. I would make it a mission every year. I did this from Aiden's age, which is three, all the way probably to middle school. Um, I would go on a hunt around my house to try to find all the gifts that my parents had purchased for me before they were wrapped. And sometimes, I would even take those presents out, they were unwrapped, I would get them out and start playing with them, like the toys. And then I'd put them back, safely and securely. And my parents would always... See evidence, despite how how uh, much I thought that I hid and covered my tracks, they would always see evidence that I had been kind of going through things, and so they'd ask, "Chris, did you try to get into your presence?" I'm like, "No, I I don't know what you're talking about. No, but I hated waiting, hated it, and I think you're the same way. Whether that's with gifts, something as simple as that, or." whether it's with something far more serious and significant. We all, we all hate waiting. No one loves to wait. Oh boy, I get to wait and wait and wait and wait. No one does that. We all don't like waiting. And for some of you, you've been waiting a long time, and it's over things far more significant than a present under the tree. Some of you have been waiting on a job for a long time. You've been waiting to find employment. Some of you have been waiting for a loved one to get better. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've taken them to doctors and and specialists and there's still no answer. And you're waiting. Some of you have been waiting a long time for a loved one to come to Christ. And that's what you want more than anything. is to see that loved one of yours know the Savior that you know. And you're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting and it still hasn't happened. It's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. I don't like waiting, and I don't always wait well. Unlike the person that gives us, that proclaims our last song in the series today that we've been in, the lyrics of Christmas, we're looking at Simeon's song. Simeon's song. And Simeon is a bit of a mysterious person. His story in Scripture is only a few verses, it's right here in this passage. Luke 2.25-35. through 35. That's really the only time you hear of this particular Simeon. There's other Simeons in the Bible, but not this guy. He shows up out of nowhere, it seems, and then he goes away just as quickly. But despite how brief his part of the story is, it's profound. It's profound and it's powerful. And what he shares through his song is incredible. Um, Simeon serves as a very strong example to all of us of what it means to worship well while you wait. And we all need to do that. We all need to worship well while we wait. It's hard to do, but it's necessary to do. And it's obvious as we, as we see what Simeon has to say, as we hear from him in this great song of Christmas, it's obvious that he didn't waste his waiting. He didn't waste his waiting. He refused to be discouraged in the waiting, and he chose instead to use the waiting that he was forced to do. He chose to use the waiting as an opportunity for his faith to grow. That's in contrast to Zechariah, who also did a lot of waiting. We looked at him a couple of weeks ago in his song, And we saw that that he waited and waited, no doubt, for a child, wanted a child, no doubt. It's It's not said that way, but we can gather that. But he and his wife didn't have any child. And he was a priest, one of many priests. And in that culture, it was unthinkable that someone in his position wouldn't be blessed by children. So he waited and waited and waited, and there was no child. Finally, they're over 80 years old and the angel Gabriel appears and says, you're going to have a baby. Your wife's going to be with child. And he didn't say, oh, I I knew this was going to happen. I believe with my whole heart this was going to happen. He said, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, right. Whatever. You've seen my wife. You know how old she is. It's not going to happen. So his waiting, his waiting was part of a discouraged heart, not part of a faithful heart. There's a contrast there. In Simeon's waiting, we don't see that. We're not told that he was discouraged. We're not told that he gave up. We're not told that he allowed depression to settle in. We're told that he just continued to wait, and he continued to use this opportunity to worship in the waiting. We need to do that too. And that's possible for us, church. No matter what you're waiting on, no matter how long you've been waiting for it, I want you to hear me on this, that it is possible to worship well in your waiting. It's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to do it well yourself. I can't either. I don't wait well. I hate waiting. But sometimes in our life, and I would say many times, I think you'll agree, God calls us to do precisely that. He calls us to wait. To wait on Him, All through the scripture, we're told to wait on the Lord, to wait on his timing, to wait on his power to be on display. And it doesn't mean that it's easy, but it means that it's possible through the power of the Spirit. And we see that in Simeon's life. So let's jump in with Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, starting off. Here's what God's Word says, beginning in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem... Whose name was Simeon? This man was righteous and devout. It tells us something about his character and his commitment. He was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. It's Israel's rescue, Israel's deliverance, Israel's comfort, all which comes through the Messiah. So this means he was looking ahead to the Messiah to the coming of the Messiah. He was believing that it was going to happen. For him, it was absolute fact. It was just a matter of time. He didn't waver. He didn't wonder. He knew Messiah was coming, and he was looking forward to him. So it tells us about his faith. He was a man of faith as well. He was looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit... Was on him. That's a significant part. That's a significant detail. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, just really good timing, right? Coincidence, right? No, of course not. Come on. This is divine appointment. Right when Mary and Joseph are bringing their newborn son in to the temple to do what is required of the law, that's where he is. That's where he comes into. He's guided by the Spirit. It's not coincidence. It's intentional. It's divine appointment. How many times have you recognized divine appointments in your life? Is that something that you look for? Is that something you readily are able to see and recognize and give glory to God for? I hope so because, listen to me, Christian. If you're in Christ, there's no such thing for you as coincidence. There really isn't. Everything in your life is ordered by your perfect Father. And everything that He brings into your life or calls you to do, is not just random chance. It's intentional, and it's divine appointment. There's all kinds of ways that God does that in our life and shows up in that way. This was one such way for Simeon. So verse 28 says, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. As you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it. In the presence of all peoples. A light. For revelation to the Gentiles. And glory to your people Israel. We'll go back to those verses. In just a minute. But I want to focus on verses 25 through 30. Where he ends. My eyes have seen your salvation. And what the Bible says says about Simeon in these verses and what we hear from his own lips in his song, it teaches us some amazing truth. It teaches us that, first of all, you have to be walking with God to recognize the work of God. You have to be walking with the Spirit of God to recognize the work of God. That's what Simeon did. He was someone who walked with God. He was someone who walked in dependence on the Holy Spirit. This being led by the Spirit as we see him doing, leading him to the temple, that was not by any means the first time that had happened. I guarantee that's what marked Simeon's life. He was a man full of the Spirit, surrendered to the Spirit. And that's how he was able to recognize the work of God. That's what has to happen. Because as you're in step with the Spirit, if you're in step with the Spirit then he helps you to see things differently. He gives you a whole new perspective and he empowers your faith while you're waiting on him. That's what we see in Simeon's life. You know, it's been popular for a long, long time for people to consider themselves to be spiritual. How many times have you heard that in conversations with people? If you talk about things of the Lord, if you talk about Christ, if you're sharing the gospel with someone sometimes people will say to you, oh yeah, I'm a very spiritual person. And that's a very popular thing to say. It's been popular in culture, to be spiritual and to consider yourself to be a spiritual person. The problem is, you cannot be a truly spiritual person outside of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is a direct gift from coming to Christ. Jesus is what makes the Holy Spirit possible. You can't have the Holy Spirit and be outside of Christ. And you can't be truly spiritual without the Holy Spirit of God. So it's tied together. It's very important that we understand that and remember that. True, true spirituality is generated by the Spirit of God. True spirituality is generated by the Spirit of God. You can't be really spiritual without Him. It's, it's a lie. It's a deception. It's still going to be self-serving, self-seeking. It's not going to be in any way of the Spirit of God with what you do, what you choose, unless you're already part of Him, walking in step with Him, which comes through Jesus Christ. It just doesn't happen. And we see that with Simeon here. And then at the end of verse 30, he says, "...for my eyes have seen your salvation... Your salvation, that's key. We need to understand, church, and believe that salvation is always, always a work of God alone, which He alone provides. I I can't bring about salvation in my own life. I can't bring it about for you. You're not going to be able to save yourself. You're not going to be able to save other people. No matter what we may want to do, no matter what we may try to do, no matter the good that we accomplish, salvation is a work of God alone. It belongs to the Lord, and we find it from him. Simeon recognized that. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Verse 31, you have prepared it. It's something that he knows comes directly from God. He alone does it, and he alone provides it, and it comes only through Jesus Christ. That's the message of Christmas that we need to remember. That's the message of Christmas we need to proclaim. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's provided only by him, and it's provided through Jesus Christ. John fourteen six. Jesus cleared that up for all of us when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm not part of the truth. I'm not a version of the way. I'm not one example of finding life. He said, I'm it. I'm exclusively those things. And no one comes to the Father but through me, he said. That's always true. Always true. And that's the truth we need to anchor our entire life on. That it comes only through Jesus Christ. Salvation is a work of God alone, which he alone provides, and he provides it through Jesus Christ. Verses 31 through 32, let me look at those again with you. He said, "'You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's you and me, and glory to your people Israel.'" There's so many amazing things that Jesus does, isn't there? Sometime I would encourage you, if you haven't done it in a while, to do this again or do it for the first time to just stop and quiet yourself, put out all the distractions, all the noises, don't have anything going on, and just allow yourself, allow your mind to just focus on all that you have through Jesus Christ all that is yours because of him. I mean, that'll, that'll take you hours and hours and hours just to let your mind soak up all that he gives, all that is possible because of him and him alone. There's just so many amazing things that Jesus does. One thing in particular that really stands out to me, one thing that I, I tend to be drawn back to over and over is the fact that Jesus is the great unifier. Jesus is the great unifier. He is the bridge between God and man. He is the mediator between God and man. That's why we don't need to go through a priest. That's why we don't need a pope sitting on some throne somewhere. We don't need that. Because there is one mediator between God and man. The man, the Savior, the Messiah, Christ Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas and every day, is the fact that we have in Jesus the great unification that we need. Not only is he the bridge and the mediator between God and man, we're told in Scripture that he is the one that united Jew and Gentile in himself. That's what Simeon talks about here, and Paul expounds on that later. Paul couldn't get over that fact. Being a Jew, but also being part of the Gentile world and, and being called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that's the fact that he couldn't get over and he talked about over and over and over every time he spoke, every time he wrote. He said, There's no longer this, this wall between us. Christ Jesus has united Jew and Gentile in himself, something that no one else could ever do. People tried to unite the two peoples and it never worked there was just too great of a wall but in Jesus they're united Jew and Gentile together as a new people in himself and he keeps doing that Jesus keeps tearing down walls and he keeps bridging gaps and he keeps bringing people together that normally would not be together and under normal circumstances won't be He overcomes every racial, every socioeconomic, every cultural, every spiritual barrier. He overcomes them all. And all who come to him, all who come to Jesus, find in him their all in all. And all who come to him, he in no way casts out. That's our good Savior. Have you come to him today? Is he your Savior? Have you allowed him to tear down whatever wall existed in your heart up to the point of coming to Christ? Have you allowed him to do that work? He's the great unifier. And he is the eternal light shining in the darkness, as we see here in Simeon's song, verses 31 through 32. He's the eternal light shining in the darkness, and he brings unity in place of division. John 17, in Christ's great high priestly prayer, before he went back to the Father, right before he went to the cross, He prayed and he said, Father, I ask you something. I pray one thing. That they, speaking of his followers, his original disciples, you and me today, that they, all who follow me, that they would be one as we are one. That's what he prayed. He prayed for you and me. That we would have such unity that it would be to the degree and to the level and to the intensity that Jesus has with his own Father Imagine that, completely unaffected fellowship. There's no one closer than the divine father and son. And Jesus enjoyed absolute perfect unity for all of eternity before he came to Bethlehem. And right before he went back to heaven, that's what he was most concerned about. He wasn't concerned about how large our churches might get. He wasn't concerned about what songs we would be singing. He wasn't concerned about what version of his word we would be reading when all that was compiled. The thing that occupied his heart and mind the most before he went to the cross was our unity as believers. And he said, may they, you and me, all that follow Christ, may they be one as we are one, Father. And here was why. It's in John 17. Here's the purpose of that prayer. Here's what motivated that desire in Christ. So that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. See, the world's not going to be impressed. The lost world, they're not going to be impressed with how many scriptures we can recite at them. They're not going to be impressed About how many times we go to church. They're not gonna be impressed by how full of scripture our music is and how great our worship is and how much we're into that or how little we are. That's not going to matter to them. What's going to matter to the unbelieving world is seeing those who claim to be believers together in love and in unity. That's what's gonna make a difference. Because the world out there is the farthest from being unified as you can get. It's full of hostility, it's full of division, it's full of hate. And unless they see something different here in us, no matter what we say, will not really bring about any change in them. Church, we need to remember who the enemy is. And we need to remember that it's not one another, it's not one another. We're not the enemy of each other. Goodness, if if we're in Christ, we are eternally family together around our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a common enemy, and it's the enemy, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of the cross, the enemy of the gospel. That's what we need to keep in mind, and we need to be pursuing unity And we need to be surrendered to the great unifier, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, looking back at the text, verse 33 says this, His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. I love that part in this passage, because that shows me that Joseph and Mary, though they believed what God said about Jesus and though they obviously trusted his plan and they were surrendered to that plan, it's, it's evident. I see here that they were still people who had to, to remind themselves of the fact that Jesus was more than just their little boy. Don't you see that? I mean, here's Mary and Joseph. They're just people. They're simple people. They're poor. We know that even from what Dexter read because according to what they brought for their offering, That, according to the law, is what you do if you don't have much. The offering they brought was a poor person's offering, yet they brought it. So they're simple. They're poor. They don't have anything really that sets them apart. And yet they've been entrusted to be the adoptive parents of the eternal Son of God. And I see here his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him and we see it later on when when Jesus is older and they're frantically looking for him and they find him teaching and they don't understand why he's doing this. I see in them the fact that sometimes they just look at him and they just see a baby or they see a little boy. And it's hard for them to remember that he has a much greater calling and a greater purpose That he has a much greater mission and that he's far more than just their son. And God understood that. And I take great comfort in that because God, we're told in his word, for each of us, knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. That's good news. Because I'm very frail I'm very weak in my faith I am so inconsistent it's really pathetic and yet God understands the fact that I am what I am which is a sinful human I'm redeemed by him I've, I've been made new but I'm still in this flesh this flesh of weakness and like Mary and Joseph which I think happened a lot probably I fail to recognize all that Jesus is far too often don't you? you're honest I think we all do we fail to recognize and remember who and what Jesus really is and all that goes into him being our savior all that is meant by him being the eternal son of God we fail to recognize as we should the implications of who he is and of what that means for us I see that with Mary and Joseph, but I see an understanding father who understands that, who works with us, who slowly brings us out of this weakness and into another area of improvement. He works on us here a little bit, there a little bit. He doesn't expect us to get it all at once. He's gracious, he's patient, he's tender. So they were amazed at what was being said about him by Simeon. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Simeon's statement here, quite a statement really, after he gets done proclaiming this great song of praise and pronouncing the coming of the Messiah and the promise kept by God after all those generations, after he does this great, amazing, high-emotion-filled song, he, he changes tone a little bit and he just addresses Mary directly. And what he says is significant. Simeon's statement here about the rising and falling of many in Israel, it's connected to the fact of Jesus always being at the center of what is really needed. Jesus is always at the center of what is really needed. Salvation, joy, hope, peace, it all rises or falls around Jesus. We need to remember that. Our greatest needs, all that we long for, all that everyone longs for, it all rises or falls around Christ. First John 5.12 clearly communicates that. John writes, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has Jesus has already, possesses life. But in contrast, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It doesn't matter who you look to or who you pursue or what you pursue. If you're not pursuing Jesus, you don't have what you really need. Because your greatest longing and your greatest need and mine, it all comes down to Jesus. That means eternity literally hangs in the balance in how we respond to Jesus. Eternity literally hangs in the balance on how we respond to Jesus. That's what is meant by Jesus being that which causes the fall and rise of many. And it wasn't just with Israel, that's true of every generation, that's true of every people. It all rises or falls around Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. That's the question that has to be answered. And Simeon says that Jesus will be a sign that will be opposed. That literally means a target that will be shot at. A target to be shot at. Jesus was always a target for evil all through his ministry, all during his earthly life journey. He was always a target for evil. He will always be a target for evil, too. He will always be a target for evil. And people still in their sin, outside of Christ, no matter how nice they might be, no matter how kind they might be, no matter how moral they might be, if people are outside of Christ, that means they're aligned with the enemy. And that's hard to hear, I know, but it's true. Not being part of Christ means you are by nature part of the enemy. We need to believe that. There's really no middle ground. There's no middle ground whatsoever. The idea that you can still know and love God and have some sort of relationship with him without coming to Christ, which a lot of people believe. Oh, I I can know God. I can love God. I can be loved by God. But I, I don't have to go through Christ for that. I mean, Jesus is hes kind of on the side. hes he, It's nice if you, if you add him to your life, but he's not necessary. A lot of people have that philosophy. A lot of people believe that. That you can come to God and be enlightened and, and experience God in many different ways, by many different avenues. You don't have to necessarily buy into this Jesus thing. But the idea that that's possible, that you can have any sort of relationship with God outside of Christ, is a lie. It's an illusion. It's a total lie and an illusion. Which, surprise, surprise, comes directly from the enemy. That's exactly where it comes from. And because of that, because people outside of Christ, no matter how good they might be in one way or another... Because of people being outside of Christ, being part of the enemy naturally against all that God is, that means that they are going to be offended by all that Christ is. They're going to be offended by all that he says and he does. And because they are offended by him, they will oppose him. And that's true, that's true in all of life. I mean, if you, if you are offended by someone, or if you have an offense against someone... If there's something that someone does to you, naturally, I'm just talking about humanity, your natural tendency is to oppose that person and to oppose all they stand for. That's what people do with Christ. If they're offended by Christ, they're not part of him, they're going to oppose him. And they're going to oppose those who follow him. That's you and me. If they oppose him, they're going to oppose us. If they're offended by him, they're going to be offended by us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should expect it. After all, Jesus plainly told us that would happen. He said, those that hate me will hate you because of me. He said, those that persecute me will persecute you. He said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. I mean, he said it plainly, clearly, over and over. He warned his original disciples and he warns us the same. If you're in me, then you're going to have to expect trouble. You're going to have to expect people being offended. You're going to have to expect people opposing you and your message and all that you stand for. But so often we act like we think he didn't really mean it. You know? When when we see People in the world, unbelievers, acting like unbelievers, we still, from time to time, get shocked by that. I mean, you know, someone cuts us off in traffic. Someone cusses at us. Someone tries to take down any reference to the Word of God in in the community and, and on monuments. And people try to omit things out of government. And people try to make... Limitations even more than they are in, in public schools. And people are, are making abortion something that totally eclipses any other rate of abortion in any other decade. People are choosing same-sex relationships. And it's like, how could this be happening? Why is this happening? What's wrong with these people? And it's like we expect unbelievers to still act like believers. And when people directly oppose us or directly attack us for standing on the truth or speaking the gospel we're puzzled by it but church we need to expect it it's what's going to happen if you're in christ that's not going to be popular it's not going to be well received we need to stop waiting for it to be we need to stop hoping for it to be Our stand with Christ and our stand on the gospel should in no way be affected or directed by anything that happens in the world around us. That's not why we're committed to Christ, just as long as it's easy or comfortable. It's not going to be. It shouldn't be. And we should expect that. In verse 35... Simeon's statement to Mary about a sword piercing her own soul. that sounds like an awful thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Here's Mary, new mother. And he says, "Guess what, Mary? He, you know, he just gave this great pronunciation of, of all that, that Christ is going to be and all he 's going to bring, all he's going to do, all that he offers. He, he praises God. I mean everything's just wonderful and bright and glorious. And, and he says, "By the way, Mary.") <laughs> Sword's going to pierce your own soul. His statement with that is it's tied to what Christ's main mission was. The primary reason for his coming to earth and being born of Mary was going to the cross and dying there. Christ's manger paved the way to his cross. Think about that. Christ's manger, we see the manger scene, you know, the nativity around this time of year, and, and uh, we put them out everywhere, and, and it's peaceful, and it's beautiful, and, and that's all good and well. But if we're not careful, we'll kind of just stay there. We'll focus there. We need to remember, and every time we see that manger scene, we need to think about the fact that it just paved the way for His cross. That was his primary purpose. His purpose in coming. The eternal Son of God coming in flesh. The incarnation. It wasn't for Christ to come and just experience having a really comfortable life as a human being. It wasn't to give his followers a really comfortable life. Neither one happened. I mean, none of that happened. We know that his coming was for one purpose and one purpose alone. It was to give himself as the sacrifice, the only sacrifice capable that we all needed of making us right with the Father that we were enemies of. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ had to come. Because unless he did, unless he came and became flesh, the eternal Son of God, unless he took that flesh and put it on a cross and gave it in death as the atonement that we all needed. Unless that happened, nothing and no one could ever make us right with the God and Father that we were under the wrath of, and that we were the enemies of. That's what Jesus did. That's what's really wrapped up in the Christmas story. That's the true and greatest gift that will ever be given. The gift of reconciliation, the gift of redemption, the gift of justification, the gift of salvation, all in Christ and all through his sacrifice. The last part of verse 35, Simeon says, The reason for this happening is that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What that says to me and what that communicates to all of us is that Christ and his cross always cause a decision to be made. Christ and his cross always cause a decision to be made. You can't come to Christ, you can't see him for who and what he is, you can't learn about what he's done, you can't understand what he offers, and go away neutral. You have to decide. The question has to be asked. What will we do with the Savior? What will we do with the Savior? What will we do with his sacrifice? That's the question that's been asked from the very beginning when he came. That was what every person around him had to answer. What will we do with this Jesus who's before us? As he went to the cross, that question had to be answered. What will you do with this suffering, sacrificing Savior? As he went to the tomb and as he rose out of the tomb, the question was, what will you now do with this Christ? What will you do with the Savior? What will you personally do with this sacrifice? And the question is asked of every person in every generation and will be asked of everyone until he comes. The question remains the same. Will we believe he is who he says he is, And that he's done what he says he's done, and that in him we have what we need. Will we believe that? Will we receive that? Or will we reject him? That's really the only choices. There's no option C. It's believe and receive all that Jesus is or reject. Two choices. And if we have believed and received, if you're here today and you have believed in Christ alone for your salvation, and you've received in Christ alone your salvation, then the question for you, the question for me is, what are we doing with it now? Alright, so we've, we've opened that present, we've opened that gift, we've claimed it, we've received it. Great. Great. But what difference is it making today and tomorrow and the next day? What difference is that gift making in your life and the lives of others? Because if you have received all that Jesus is and all that He gives, the next step, the next thing required, is that you go out and give that to someone else. It's not a gift that you hold on to and keep to yourself. You have to receive it for yourself. No one else can do that for you. But having received, you have to go and share. You re-gift the gift that you've been given. We're probably going to be doing a lot of that tomorrow. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. Someone's going to have a re-gift. But that's what we need to do every single day with the gift of salvation. Re-gift it. Re-gift it. Re-gift it. Surrender to all that it is in our own life, day in, day out. Let it renew us, moment by moment, and take it and give it to those who have yet to receive it, yet to claim it, yet to open it. That's what Christmas is all about. We've looked at a lot of lyrics of Christmas throughout this series, great, amazing songs that point this great big arrow to all that Jesus is, all that he alone is, shines a great big light on the glory of our Savior. Our Savior. What song are you going to sing is the question. What song are you singing now? and What difference is it making in your life and those around you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Simeon's example along with all the other examples that we've looked at through this series. Thank you for Mary and her willingness to be used by you as a vessel, as an instrument to bring your son into this world. Thank you that we see in her song, and when we started off, Father, we see so clearly that she recognized that she was no one special, that she had a need of of the Savior, of her son as her own Savior, just like anyone else. Thank you, Father, for Zechariah's song, and we see that your timing is always perfect. And that the waiting will not be wasted by you. And that you will do great things in our life through it. Thank you, Father, that we see through the angels' song. And maybe we'll see again as we read that together in our homes tomorrow morning or later tonight. We'll be reminded that you don't just use the rich and the powerful and the famous and the flashy. But you, you have a plan to use each and every one of us right where we are in our natural rhythms And you use those that the world would consider useless to do great things through. And Father, thank you for Simeon's example, that we see someone who, no doubt, year after year after year, well into his older years, stayed faithful to your word, to your promise, who didn't waver, he didn't allow himself to become discouraged, he kept on believing and trusting, and looking, and expecting for you to do what you said you would do. And then he rejoiced in seeing it. Father, may the same be true of us as we continue to wait on you in different ways in our life, as we continue to wait on you through our journey here on earth, as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior in his second advent. Father, may we, like Simeon, worship you well while we wait. Empower us by your Spirit in this way, I pray. And the gift that we have received, if we have received that, through your Son and the salvation that he alone provides, if we have received that, please, Father, make us people that are passionate and courageous and consistent in giving that gift to other people. We pray all of this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.